1: My name is Charles Sennett, and I am the executive director of the Ground Truth Project and the co-founder of Global Post. Uh, I am today's moderator. Um, I wanted to just say that uh, we have an online audience, as well as an audience here. I welcome you all, both online and in person. Um, Today's program, Climate Change, Health and Disease Threats. It's an hour long, and it is a collaboration of the forum at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Ground Truth Project. Today's panelists. Starting from my immediate right are Aaron Bernstein, Ari, um, Associate Director of the Center for Health and Global Environment at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Hospitalist, Division of General Medicine, Boston Children's Hospital, Ari. Um, Jack Spengler, uh, Director of the Center for Health and the Global Environment, Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, Jack. Barry Levy, (laughs) co-director of a new book, uh, Climate Change and Public Health, an award-winning new book. Uh, Also adjunct professor of public health at Tufts Medical School, former president of the American Public Health Association. Um, And uh, the book was just named uh, Environmental Health Book of the Year by the American Journal of Nursing. So congratulations. um joining us remotely is Maria Nira, Director of the Department of Public Health, Environmental and Social Determinants of Health at the World Health Organization. Maria, welcome. Um, the program is going to include a brief Q&A. Um, you can email questions to the forum at hp excuse me, the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat discussion that's happening on the forum site right now. Um, I've just returned from Paris. And by just, I mean I'm still jet lagged. (laughs) I have just gotten off uh, the plane last night. And uh, it was really an extraordinary moment. I was there for the historic gathering and agreement that was signed on climate change at COP21. Uh, We saw delegates from 196 countries who gathered there uh, for truly an historic moment. Um, and it's, it's interesting for me as a journalist who's covered the Middle East for so many years that I keep running into climate as a central issue. Um, I keep hearing about it. You know, I'm, I'm more used to talking about Hezbollah and Hamas than health indicators. But now, suddenly, the talk around the war in Syria is about climate. Uh, the talk about the migrations of people is about climate. Um, Specifically, some of our reporting at the Ground Truth Project uh, on global health has been headed up by Marissa Miley, who is our environment and global health editor, and she's here today. Marissa was with us in Paris and and really heading up a team of six top young journalists who were there in Paris um, reporting. Through five years of seeing Marissa lead global health projects, we kept running into climate change on the course on global health stories about child mortality and about infectious disease. But what really grabbed the attention of Marissa and our team of reporters is that we were not running into global health issues at the conference on climate change. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we want to explore today is why is that. Um, We'll be looking very carefully at this through the eyes of of our panelists who can really enlighten us on how there are all of these cross-currents running through this threat matrix in our world right now that really do allow us to link some of the conflicts and some of the, the enormous challenges on global health back to climate and understanding it in that context. Um, so we will begin uh, by, by trying to open this conversation. Uh, and uh, Ari, I'm going to ask you to start us off, if you would, and provide us some context about why health is an important part of the climate change discussion.
2: Sure. Uh, so I'm a pediatrician. And as a pediatrician, it's my job to ensure the health of children. And in my view, there are few things that can be done uh, that are more important to that end than doing what we are doing as regards to climate change. There's really nothing uh, about our health that is not in play when it comes to climate change. The air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, uh, all can be affected through climate change. So air quality, uh, more heat can make ozone more common. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can produce forest fires uh, Mm -hmm. that produce air pollution. Uh, Water scarcity, an immense issue, quite relevant in Syria, as you mentioned, relevant in this country. Uh, Food, so with too much heat, not enough water, too much water, hard to grow food. So regardless of what aspect of health you might talk about, climate change matters. And perhaps the most important thing when it comes to climate change and health, though, is that all of these factors, be it extreme heat, droughts, floods, uh, food shortages, are putting pressure on people to move? Um, it's what I call the final common pathway of climate change. All of these effects really do push populations to move. And we know from experience, as you described, that some of the unhealthiest populations on the planet are those that are forced to move against their will. The other side, though, is critically important, though, is that because we're doing something about climate change, we actually stand at the, at the, at the entry point to perhaps the greatest public health intervention ever. Mm-hmm. So we have so much to benefit uh, from our actions to decarbonize our economy. And that's why what happened in Paris makes me so optimistic about what we can do to ensure the healthiest possible future.
1: OK, thank you, Ari. I'm going to now say, just for a moment, with that really nice introduction for these issues, to say. I want you to feel just for a moment what it was like in Paris um, and to really be able to experience um, that moment of history when the gavel came down. Um, we were there with our team reporting from the Ground Truth Project. We're based at WGBH. So we were there with our partners from PRI the world, huge team from WGBH, team from Nova, really great presence from WGBH there on this, this really powerful moment i've been a journalist for 30 years i've had a handful of experiences in my life where you feel you are truly in a front row seat of history so um, i hope you were able to follow some of our coverage from paris we had uh, a live blog we also had um, a lot of stories that these top young journalists who we train and support have been doing i hope you follow that but before we go on to jack i just want to take a moment and share with you a clip From the pool report uh, from our colleagues at Reuters which really captures the moment this all happened."
0: With a small hammer, you can achieve great things, says French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius, who announced a landmark climate accord Saturday. Delegates from almost 200 nations witnessed the historic decision to shift away from fossil fuels, an end to nearly two weeks of tense negotiations. And world leaders are hailing the deal as truly global, binding both rich and poor nations to curbing their greenhouse gas emissions. Speaking at the White House, U.S. President Obama said the accord shows what is possible when the world stands as one.
3: This agreement represents the best chance we've had to save the one planet that we've got.
0: The accord aims to limit the rise in global temperatures to less than two degrees Celsius. The binding text also contains loose language which could enable countries to offset their own emissions by buying emissions credits from other nations. Some protesters say they question how these countries will be held accountable if they do not achieve their targets. But these delegates say the deal is a victory for the planet and for future generations to enjoy it.
1: OK, so that gives you a sense of the enormity of the moment and the green gavel, the famous green gavel. Um, it was also an extraordinary opportunity to see the American delegation at work there, Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, very much working the hallways. And we had a chance to catch a glimpse of him in the background, very powerful. But I want to now go to Maria Nira, um, who will appear on our monitor. She's joining us remotely, as I've said. And Maria, I wanted to just check with you. You know, This was an observation uh, that we had inside the COP uh, that we were not hearing enough about climate change. We know that WHO did convene a side event. Um, but how does the World Health Organization see COP21? Uh, and what generally is the intersection of health and climate change?
4: Thank you, Charlie. And uh, I was one of those privileged to be there as well on those on the historic moment when everybody was on tears or laughing or feeling that it was an historical moment. And I like very much what Laurent Fabius says uh, on his speech, at one moment he says, this will serve public health. And I I think that was one of the most critical moments for us because it's truly, it's absolutely true, and one of the panelists already mentioned it, this is a strong, agreement for public health, probably one of the biggest we will sign this century, because it's a transformation of our society and health is one of the important and the stronger arguments for this healthy transformation that we are putting in place here. For us, this is an ambitious uh, uh, agreement. This is something that set targets. So now the, the, the international community will be able on a very transparent way to see whether those targets are Uh, under implementation or not. uh, We will not have any legal mechanism, maybe, but we will have the responsibility as a society to check whether the countries are going or not for those targets. Another important point is that uh, now air pollution is very much under the spot. And for us, you know that this has been one of the stronger arguments we were presenting. Okay, climate change is already affecting our health, we have enormous amount of evidence, scientific evidence there, but we have as well very good arguments telling us that there will be major health benefits that can be obtained if we tackle the causes of climate change, if we put in place what in the, the public health community we have been always calling primary prevention because it's all about primary prevention. Therefore, we see that air pollution is now one of the fundamental changes on all, all of this debate, because we have every year more than 7 million premature deaths caused by air pollution, according with the estimates by the World Health Organization, we have been putting that very much at the heart of the discussions. And if the citizens, they have at one moment difficulties to make the linkages between climate change and health, they wouldn't have at all difficulties to link air pollution and health, because they were feeling it very much, and you could see that that has changed a little bit the the agreement. So for us, it's all about now being the kind of uh, post-COP 21 generation, the one that we will implement and make sure that the adaptation funds that have been committed, this famous 100 that will be put uh, uh, particularly to support developing countries on their adaptation plans. We need to make sure that the health uh, sector will be beneficiary as well of those massive funds because it's very much suffering the consequences of climate change. And we need to be there as well to push for this uh, new transformation and the the, the less uh, use of fossil fuels that are so bad for our health. And uh, we will be there as well to monitor the health co-benefits and the great opportunities for health that this treaty might represent. So I think uh, we all will be uh, very happy to say Vive la France and be part of this movement. And uh, only the French diplomacy could do something like that. Well, I'm sure that many of the fantastic angels speak. But, and I'm not French, huh, so I'm not, uh, But it was really uh, a yeah. truly miracle. Well, and uh, the Tour Eiffel was there to, to witness that. So it was a, a fantastic experience. It Thanks. was
1: an amazing moment. And thank you, Maria. I think you really captured this feeling uh, as someone who was, who was there and part of history. Um, there was a feeling of vive la France, of, a, of defiance. No one does la résistance better than the French. And to come off of the terror attacks of November 13th and see France really asserting itself, reconstituting itself, and maybe even emboldening the world to really come together for this agreement might be something some of you might want to touch on. Maria, I want to come back to you at some point and push a little further about global health and say, was it sufficiently discussed? Is it sufficiently into the 31-page agreement in a way that you feel uh, it should be? And is the funding of $100 billion a year starting after 2020 going to be enough to take care of the enormous uh, breadth of responsibilities that come with uh, this historic agreement. So maybe we'll come back to you. But just, just to turn to you, Jack mm-hmm. Spengler, um, Maria used the example of air pollution. And we have um, your great expertise here, Jack, as someone who has really looked at this as a pollution expert um, can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of the underappreciated aspects of air quality, and maybe take us inside these co-benefits that can
5: come with this? Sure, agreement. I'd be glad to. In fact, if you show a slide, because Charlie, well, you and Maria were enjoying Paris and uh, <laughs> doing your work, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, Twenty million other people in, in uh, Beijing were forced to breathe this kind of air, uh, and it was a red alert. I mean, this is exactly what Maria was talking about. Uh, what, uh, what are the implications of fossil fuels to health, to air pollution, and to health? And, mm-hmm. and I, I chose this slide bec- not because we don't know air pollution exists around the world, uh, in sub saharan Africa to Asia, to India, to elsewhere. But this is front page Wall Street Journal. And who reads that? It's the corporate leaders and the government leaders. And what is, why is that significant? Because it's a link now between the fossil fuels and economic disruption and civic disenchantment. So before Under the Dome was taken down that revealed to the Chinese people the price of progress, the sad, the underside of that, with contamination, uh, You know, we're beginning to understand that, that this is a huge public health price that we're paying. And it's an obvious link from climate change to greenhouse gas reductions. To the double wins, and we'll talk about that. But the double wins are renewable and clean air. That's a double win. Right?
1: Coming yeah. out of the yeah. idea that this could spur business growth, yeah. investment.
5: But you know, the edict here was the suggestion, public health suggestion. Think of this. Uh, you know, how long have we been dealing with air pollution? Stop driving and stay indoors. Wear a mask and stay indoors. Mm-hmm. And where do you think the air comes from that's inside? The air we're breathing here it came from outside. Right. Uh, and it carries a lot of the attributes of outside. And we add things to it. Right. So the air cleaners that the middle class buy in China might help the particles, but it doesn't help the gases, the formaldehyde, the chemicals that come out of the product. So it is a complex public health issue that can only be addressed by cleaner fuels, better technology.
1: OK, and just to contextualize what the air quality in Beijing, while these delegates were meeting from around the world to address this issue, how bad was it in contextualizing history? I know it was one of the worst in modern times. Is it, is it as bad as it gets in
5: Beijing as the world body was gathering? Uh It is the first time the red alert was called, this is extreme danger, but I experienced this when I was in uh, Singapore, and mm-hmm. the fires from Sumatra mm-hmm. came over and shut down Singapore. Right. And that was f- five, four times the health safety levels. And I'm sure it was this. Okay. I mean, these, and I've been in Beijing where you can't see when you land at the airport, 10 gates, the car, planes at 10 gates down the road. So that's 200, 300 micrograms. This is the old days of, uh, of uh, London. Okay, thank you. Uh,
1: okay, so I just I want to turn now to you, Barry Levy. Um, and I wanted to ask you about your new book. Congratulations on climate change and public health. Um, I had a lot of um, time on the plane over the last <laughs> few weeks. And I, um, I, I, I think what you've, what you've outlined is extraordinary. Could you tell us a little bit about the key findings in your book and why you wrote it?
3: Sure. And, and uh, Jonathan Patz is a co-editor, and we had uh, 76 contributors from around the world. But basically, we wrote it because we felt that physicians, nurses, other health professionals, and policymakers really needed a concise, comprehensive, and understandable so... <laughs> way of learning about the the various health effects, many of which have been already touched on uh, by Ari and and Maria and and Jack. Um, Not only to understand the health effects themselves, but the particularly vulnerable populations and what health professionals, policymakers, and others can do, not only to help mitigate the uh, greenhouse gases that are causing uh, climate change, but uh, to help everybody adapt and to promote policies and programs that will help us to adapt to existing climate change and a certain amount
1: of climate change that is destined to happen no matter what we do at the present time. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Um, one of the uh, really underappreciated aspects of climate change, and, and you write about this, Barry, uh, is the links to the loss of traditional lifestyles and and sometimes even conflict. We saw um, so many of the indigenous people of the Arctic and other, other people who were there, present on the streets in Paris, um, trying to have their voices heard. I'm not so sure they were heard enough. Um, We have a clip um, that we can go to uh, that was produced by uh, The Daily Climate and PRI's The World, our partner at WGBH. And it shows how drought and unexpected heavy rainfall has impacted a Maasai family and their herd of cattle. Um, it really shows that that um, the family's ability is greatly impacted in terms of how they're going to make a living and how much food they'll have. Um, and the clip opens with a young member of the family who's a marathon runner, who's worried about climate change's impact on his future.
6: The weekly cattle market is the cornerstone of the Maasai economy, and sales here depend on the kind of steady rains that once were the norm in Kenya. These days, Takiyata sells less cattle here because there haven't been the steady rains for at least a decade. takiata lost over 50% of his cattle to drought since the early 2000s. Losses like that have a big impact on Maasai families. But it's not just the Maasai economy that's tied to a predictable climate. It's also the culture and for members of the younger generation, like Taketa's nephew, Johanna, it's more and more challenging to be a pastoralist.
4: You know now droughts are coming and climate change, so a lot of cows are dying during the droughts. So it's making them to, to look for the other options.
6: But with the other options, it's often impossible to wear the colorful Masai attire called the shuka. Johanna certainly can't wear it as a runner, and his brothers and sisters are very Westernized as well. I have a worry that the Masai culture is really going down.
1: Barry, I want to ask you to just take us a little bit um, deeper inside this issue and to talk a little bit about climate change and its impact on traditional lifestyles and um, on conflict.
3: Yes. Well, indigenous people, as we saw in the video clip, are, are tied to the land. They're, they're closely tied. Uh, th- their food, their shelter, their, their water uh, is, is very uh, you know, immediate right there. And, and climate change is going to uh, adversely affect their, their lifestyle in many ways. It, it disrupts their traditional lifestyle, their family structure. It will force many of them to migrate within their own countries and be at risk for uh, many health issues that migrants, uh, displaced people, are at risk for. And it will cause, with increased scarcity of, of uh, necessities, it will cause more conflict, including violent conflict. And it's pastoralists, like we saw in the video, uh, cattle and sheep farmers, uh, women and children, who are in, in, uh, especially going to be uh, impacted and are already being impacted uh, by these changes. Uh, it not only affects tangible things, but indigenous people are spiritually connected to their land, and so it's, it's uh, Affecting that as well, and affecting their their uh, mental health and their social cultural health as well. So, this is of, of great concern and, and a set of
1: problems that are only going to get worse as, as time goes on. Okay, thanks, Barry. So we're we're almost at halfway through our program, and this is. Uh, um, Really, the second part of our forum, and it's it's something we're calling addressing the issues, and we want to say we can have a little bit more interplay uh, between you, our panelists, now uh, on some of these issues, and we'll go in sort of theme by theme on um, how we can look at some of these issues. So, why don't we start with you, Jack? If Mm -hmm. we could Um, talk a little bit about this idea of building resilient communities.
5: Yeah. So, uh, there's I think this is the new vocabulary word, uh, where sustainability might be mm-hmm. charged, uh, climate change might be charged politically. I think resilience, everyone can understand that uh, that this, this is what we want to build into our, our cities. So uh, I think one looks to what our own Cambridge and Boston is doing. It's remarkable. They're looking at projections of excessive rain, heat stress, storm surges, and the models show it doesn't top our dams at the end of the Charles and the Mystic. It comes around it with massive flooding. So this, so now we have the tools to start to say what are the implications, and I think to cross-hatch uh, those where our critical infrastructure is and our vulnerable populations are is is where civic responsibility steps in, and really I think we can be prospective about that. But a lot of states mm-hmm. and cities aren't doing mm-hmm. that. And in fact, I think Hurricane uh, Katrina and, and Sandy showed how vulnerable our sure. coastal cities are. So I particularly noted, and maybe you saw this in Paris, um, reports by mayors. The big cities, small city mayors were on the scene. I heard one report, mayors from the, uh, from the Ohio River or, or Mississippi River joining with other city mayors around big, big rivers around the world because they recognized their vulnerability. Once their sewer system's knocked out, flooding problems, uh, infrastructure shutdowns. So they recognize the, the impact at the local level. Uh, and I think that's where the action's going to be in the next couple of years.
1: That was very uh, much a part of the discussion yeah. uh, in the mm-hmm. wings at cop twenty one was about this sort of bottom up approach mm-hmm. coming from cities, coming from governors, coming from these things. we one uh, one mayor we spoke with was from a a city in the Philippines, and we did a piece um, yesterday on PRI, the world where she was talking about resiliency, and of course, it was coming right off of the news of the typhoon that's hit there. and mm-hmm. so this this feeling of going from a historic moment at a conference right into the reality yeah. staring well, us. That's the Beijing right, in, Beijing happened, during yeah. the conference yeah. Yeah. and the typhoon in the immediate aftermath. Thank you, yeah. Jack. Ari, I wanted to ask you about one of the other really big uh, topics that we need to sort out and think about more carefully, which is sort of regulation strategies in the aftermath of the COP. This is going to be a big part of whether or not this COP is truly historic.
2: Yeah. So thanks for that. You know. If you look at our current energy systems, which are roughly 80% fossil fuel based both here in the United States and elsewhere in in the world, uh, they face an enormous number of pressures right now. First of all, there's increasing demand. So a large part of the world, we've got about a billion people who have no access to electricity. (laughs) They're going to need energy to develop. Uh, So you've got demand. And then, as we've already talked about, you have huge burdens of disease caused by those same energy systems. 7 million people, about 3 million of those from outdoor air pollution, 4 million from indoor air pollution, uh, water scarcity issues, uh, and so forth and so on. And so we find ourselves caught in, in what I like to call the energy pickle. We're getting chased by all these factors into how to figure out to move our energy forward. And now, with Paris, we push ourselves as a world community in a new direction, which is to add another, another pressure on, which is decarbonization. So I think the critical lesson of the past is that if we don't put health on the table now, we may wind up in a future energy pickle that is equally as unattractive as the present day one. Because the reason we're in this pickle now is because when we chose fossil fuels, we didn't really think about health. And so we're playing catch up. So we have an enormous opportunity, again, not just to decarbonize, but to really think critically about our energy future and what the health dimensions of our energy future look at. You know, Jack talked about mayors who live on rivers. Well, think about where our power comes from today. Almost all of our power plants are on bodies of water. Well, in a world with rising seas, it might not be the best place for us to continue to build power plants. And that's just a simple example. But the point is that we know enough now, because mm-hmm. as, as Jack alluded to, we know enough to be able to think critically about the health dimensions of our energy future, and now is the time now is absolutely the time. Are you convinced
1: that there is enough momentum for um, the regulation strategies and the the commitments that come with those who've signed on to COP21? Um, is it really going to get things done? I think there's a great deal of cynicism out there about whether or not we're really going to see the sea change that
2: is promised. Yeah. So I work in the business of skepticism and cynicism both in the climate realm (laughs) and as a pediatrician and and let me let me let me say this which is that uh, people care about their health and they absolutely care about the health of their Mm -hmm. children Mm -hmm. and making clear what's at stake for the health of people and their children is ultimately to me one of the most powerful arguments we can make for a call to action So we cannot fall to the face of cynicism. We cannot fall to the face of false beliefs, which are out there. We must focus on the reality that we face and realize that we stand, as I mentioned before, we stand to gain so much, and not just about the things I talked about before, about the heat Mm -hmm. waves. But think about the major public health challenges we face right now, obesity, Mm -hmm. arguably one of the major public health Mm -hmm. crises in the world right now. If we do what we need to do for climate change, we're actually going to have a tremendous impact if we eat less meat, if we walk more, if we use more public Mm -hmm. transit, uh, if we decrease the air pollution that's killing 3 million people a year. The kids I take care of who are obese are going to eat better diets, they're not going to be forced indoors on bad air pollution days because mm-hmm. <laughs> we won't have them, mm-hmm. and so forth and so on. So that is uh, that is a perfect
1: um, framing and, and transition to bring Maria in on this and to really talk about what, what you call this call to action for health professionals. And Maria, I wanted you to to tell us a little bit about that call to action. How how it's being sent out, how much the signal is being received globally. And if you could, maybe in the context of that, come back to us with a little bit more about was global health sufficiently recognized in the actual text of the document? Would you like to have seen it more present uh, in the negotiations and in the hallways, which was where so much of the action was uh, in Paris?
4: Thank you. Uh, Maybe we should start by the fact that um, the first report that the World Health Organization produced on climate change and health was 20 years ago. And then we started to attend the COP 12 years ago. And believe me, the first year when we attended, the so-called health community, somebody was telling me the other day that we could all fit on 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 a phone, I mean, on a very small room. It was a very small community. We were trying to pass messages, and we were considered as the kind of, okay, fine, you, you have a nice message, but we have serious business to deal with here. Then we, we keep producing a lot of scientific evidence in contact, obviously, with many uh, other from the public health community. The evidence was there. It has been a moment where things started to change and it's exactly when we started to put things a little bit in positive, saying, okay, climate change is affecting very negatively our health and we have all of those terrible arguments about the pillars of our health being affected by climate change, access to food, access to water, access to shelter, to, to clean air. But more importantly, if you tackle the causes of climate change, you can obtain benefits that you cannot imagine. You can tackle the non-communicable diseases epidemic that you were referring to. You can uh, reduce the the, the damage caused by the exposure to air pollution. You can have a more sustainable way of of producing and consuming and moving. So it will be a fantastic opportunity. When you started to put all of those arguments and to put the, the air pollution component, people started to understand. And I think on that, this call for action, urgent call for action that WHO has been pushing in the last months or so, it has been fundamental as well, because we started to have behind that call for action, pneumologists talking about asthma, and then people was able to make that connection. We had all sorts of specialists from very, Still credible, uh, professional medical profession, saying this is bad for our health and this can be very good for our health. And this is the way we were trying to mobilize and to engage the health community to the level of saying this is the greatest opportunity for public health. If you have a strong treaty in Paris, it will be a strong treaty for for uh, uh, public health. All of that is important. I think. At the same time, obviously, we have been putting all the arguments related to access to clean energy and the importance for public health of that. Uh, uh, You you were mentioning the outdoor pollution, but if you look at the fact that uh, almost half of the world population is still relying on biomass or uh, wood to cook or to, to heat in their house or to even lighten, lighten in the, the, the little household. And this is about human rights as well. I mean, you have girls normally collecting wood, uh, walking for hours, obviously not going to school because they need to collect the wood to then cook and uh, and then inhalating the, the, the particles in suspensions and the little boy who or children that is normally in the back of the mom uh, suffering from pneumonia and other diseases. That was really very heavy, so we are not at the level we would like to see health at the treaty, but it's very important to say that uh, right to health, and those are the words, is an overarching concept at the preamble and uh, in the decision agreement. Then there is another two references to health. One is on the health co-benefits from mitigation uh, uh, interventions, and another one is on adaptation. So, three references to health, all very uh, strong. Uh, it's important to say as well that the the, the treaty is not uh, mentioning sectorial. I mean, it was an intention to avoid reference to sectorial issues. For instance, uh, our colleagues were working on oceans or energy they were complaining because it was no reference to agriculture or to forest or to oceans while in health we have three references. it's not all we wanted but and it's not uh, we are not measuring the 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 success of the treaty by the number of times that health is mentioned but i think it came very strongly as an argument and something that's happened in Paris, uh, in, uh, in the margins of the COP, is very relevant to what you were discussing here. Uh, Major Hidalgo from Paris and Major Bloomer, they convene a meeting of 1,000 majors from around the world, recognizing that most of the interventions now for this big transformation and, uh, and mitigation of climate change and air pollution will be taken at the urban or uh, city level. And this is where now those local leaders will be fundamental in the implementation because 70% of the greenhouse gases emissions are produced at the urban level, at the city level. And the mayors have a multi sectorial role so they can really understand the health argument and they start to take action there. So that was very relevant as well. And, and health, the World Health Organization was invited to be present, so it was a good opportunity to. to
1: Maria, I, want to, um, I just want to jump in there and, and go into one area. Just, uh, if you could just give us a, a little bit more on the area of particularly of women and children and the way in which climate change has a disproportionate impact on women and often children. Um, we've talked about children a little bit, but I wanted to go more into the issue of women. We, we had uh, an amazing group of young journalists working with us in Paris. Um, of the six journalists, five were women. Um, all five of them felt very strongly that this is one of the more pronounced issues they saw coming in every corner of every meeting they could get and every interview they could get, that, uh, that we need to think about women in the relationship to their health and, it, and the impact of climate change on that health. Can you tell us a little bit more about where is the argument on that now? Um, how do we get that brought more to the fore?
4: One big argument is uh, just to give you an example. We did a survey in um, 40 countries in sub Saharan Africa in uh, healthcare facilities. 40% of those healthcare facilities do not have a reliable source of energy at all, clean or dark or uh, any type of energy. That means that those healthcare facilities cannot help a woman to deliver Uh, for instance, or you have to do it with a kerosene lamp, and I know what I'm talking about because I've been doing it myself in the field. And uh, if you don't have a refrigerator on a healthcare facility, you will have major difficulties to do a a proper uh, support to a woman who will be terrified to go to the healthcare facility over the night because then she might have another problem because she will be assaulted. The second issue, and it's extremely important for gender, is what I was mentioning before, that uh, half of the, almost half of the world population is still cooking like in the Stone Age. On an open fire, you collected wood or, or vegetable uh, coal or whatever, but you need to collect that, and normally there are the little girls, the ones responsible for, for, for cooking and collecting wood, and this is putting very much at risk their capacity to have an education. And uh, this is fundamental as well. So it's, a, it's an issue of, of gender and access to clean energy and sustainable energy will be fundamental to reduce maternal mortality because of the clinics in Africa that I was referring in Africa and in Asia, obviously in other countries. Because of this gender discrimination regarding the collection of uh, fuels for, for cooking. And because of the, the fact that when there is a migration, uh, because a natural disaster or, or, you know, when you lose your shelter or your capacity to have agricultural production, then normally those are the women's in charge of this uh, uh, agricultural basic uh, production of food for for their families. Okay, so thank it, you. A major
1: issue. Great, thank you. I want to um, say we're we're in good shape on time, but I do want to um, sort of. I hasten to get to this um, conversation around co-benefits. It's something that we heard Maria mention. Barry, could you describe for us a little bit more? What do we need to pay attention to in terms of co-benefits?
3: Sure, sure, absolutely. Let let me me talk about this in two ways. Um, uh, First, to pick up on what Ari said earlier, that to the extent that we shift away from a meat based diet to more of a plant-based diet, uh, we're doing a lot to uh, reduce our carbon uh, footprint individually and as as a society. To the extent that we move away from fossil fuel-powered vehicles and do more walking and, and bicycling, so-called active transport. It's, it's not only better for climate change, but it's it's better for individual health. But I'd also like to pick up on what Maria said on a more societal or, or macro level, that to the extent that we address some of these problems that we, we contextualize in terms of climate change, we're really addressing other really very important issues in terms of women's rights, children's rights, vulnerable populations, indigenous people. So I think it's important that we uh, recognize that these issues are not only co-benefits at an individual level, but as a societal level, and even go be, going beyond the constructs of active transport and a healthier diet. You know, one, one definition of public health is what we do as a society, as a global society collectively to assure the conditions in which people can be healthy. And so I, I think there's a real opportunity, as, as Maria indicated, for us to leverage what's happening here in these actions to address climate change, to address a lot of other public health and human rights issues at the same time. OK, thanks. Um,
1: uh, adding to, to this uh, issue around all of the ways in which people, particularly women and children, are affected by climate um, is, is conflict. And I think that's something that sadly has been my business for way too long. I covered Iraq, I covered Afghanistan, um, and uh, you know have just watched uh, so closely what's happening in the Middle East. And it's only recently that those of us who cover stories like that are starting to really get the connection. We may be quite slow on this. You've had a body of work that's a lifetime work of excellence. As a journalist, um, I'd ask you to help us understand collective violence and around resource-based uh, conflicts, and how we, as the storytellers, need to understand these themes better, and and have to tell that story better so that we we make the through line accurately but powerfully. And uh, I want to you know jump in, but all right, do you want to start us off, and Barry, then maybe you can sure. bring it home.
2: Sure. Uh, you know, I think that any conflict is going to have a number of different sources, right? You're not usually going to have a conflict that strikes immediately from resource scarcity, although we have seen that. What I will say though is that if you look at recent conflicts, we already mentioned what's going on in Syria, many of the uprisings around the Arab Spring, uh, the conflicts that occurred in Somalia a few years ago around a famine. If you look at the conditions around those countries, not much had changed for a long time. There were, in some cases, repressive governments. There was discontent on many levels, but what was the straw in the camel's back in many cases was an extreme climate event.
1: Mm -hmm. So this becomes this idea of the threat multiplier, looking at climate change in the context of a threat multiplier.
2: Right, and so. If we're concerned about refugees in the world today, and that does not just mean people who are forced outside of their countries, but the majority of people who are forced to move are still within their countries for Mm -hmm. any number of reasons, Mm -hmm. we cannot ignore the fact that climate change is going to amplify the risk of people being displaced. And as we're witnessing in the world right now, that is never been, and is certainly not today, an issue limited to the countries in which this is happening. Mm-hmm. The Syrian refugee crisis is very much affecting our country right now, is affecting all of Europe, uh, and, and this is a paradigm we are going to be facing, I expect, in the decades to come. OK.
1: Secretary of State Kerry has articulated it very well, I think. Um, as someone who has studied a lot of security issues, he, was, he is a veteran himself, served in Vietnam, and seeing his, his work uh, at the COP, as I said, was it dogged diplomacy, really working it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we saw the president of the United States be, be strongly criticized for trying to make this, this threat matrix in which we need to look at climate change, and at least in long-term metrics, as being a greater global security threat than perhaps terrorism. Barry, can you help us understand okay, that sure. through line without allowing it to get overly politicized and turn yes. into a partisan debate sure. that gets sure. us nowhere?
3: Yeah. And in the current Democratic administration, the Obama administration, in the previous uh, George W. Bush Republican administration, our, our military has, this has been on, on the you know inside of our military for a long time. And they've been uh, seeing this as, as a threat multiplier, as a national security issue. So this is not a partisan po- a political issue. This is a, uh, an important issue with regard to our national national security. And and in fact, this is not a new phenomenon. There are studies going back a 1,000 years showing that whenever there are long periods or even relatively short periods of intense climate change, that is, extremes of precipitation, extremes of temperature, it affects a number of things, including agriculture. It leads to scarcity. It leads to violence, not only between nations, but Mm -hmm. often within nations. And um, so we need to be prepared for this. We need to um, do what we've done in so many other ways to try to uh, interrupt uh, uh, violent conflict, in fact, even before it begins, and to try to find uh, peaceful resolution to, to conflicts, but also, of course, to address the, the climate change issues
1: themselves. OK, thank you. Um, we're about to come to your questions, uh, uh, the online questions. And I hope we have some time for, for the audience questions as well. But before we go, Jack, can you just talk a little bit about if we're going to understand these issues, we're going to have to really look at the role of universities and schools in shaping the debate.
5: Yes, and I'll have a slide of Drew Faust, who couldn't be with us. But okay. I have brought one of her and something she said to all of us. But I, I look at we're from medical schools, schools of public health. And what worries me a bit about the climate change is the celebration of our world leaders and our corporate leaders. Mm. right? Mm-hmm. And then it becomes their job or the mayor's job. It doesn't become our job. It doesn't become the audience's mm-hmm. job. And this is so critical. And Fowles said it well. We're accountable to the future. Universities are accountable to the future. Our role is to prepare those professionals, anticipate the needs in society, and prepare those, those responsible professionals for the next 40 years of their careers. That'll put them to 2050, 2060. And if they don't have the tools to really an understanding, then we haven't done our job. But I'd like to say we are doing our job. And I think it's manifested in a couple of people. I think Jonathan Bonacore from our center is in the audience. And he uh, graduated from the School of Public Health. He ran the national grid, the emission grid, for the whole United States and then said, what would climate reduction strategies put forth by this administration do for health? 3,000, 4,000 lives saved. I mean, that's the kind of analytical tool that's needed. And then one other person. uh, Catelyn Powers, uh, one of my favorite persons on earth, because she worked in Western China in the nomadic populations, mm. indoor air pollution, outdoor issues, and built solar cookers with the women, mm. designed it. And now her, her NGO is uh, distributing these things worldwide. IKEA is buying thousands of them for refugee camps in Sub Saharan Africa. Mm. That's the impact. That and we do
1: can have. we have a clip that we want to show? Do we have time for that? Uh,
5: I don't think that I don't think we queued it up. I was a little concerned okay. about that. Okay. Yep.
1: Yeah. Great. So we have the slide here, um, and and just the huge and important role that universities will play. Mm-hmm. Um, we are we're going to run short on time, uh, but we're going to have enough time for some questions. And we're gonna we'll just start off. Um, Lisa, do we have online questions?
7: Yes, we do. And I think just following up on what we were just talking about. Um, here's someone from Panama writing in Samantha De Leon Satu, National Officer of Public Health at IFMSA Panama. Warm greetings from Panama City. I would like to quickly drop a question: Which do you think are the best ways to engage young medical students and doctors in advocating for mitigation and adaptation strategies for climate change, along the lines of what? we were just talking about.
1: That's a great question. And Maria, do you want to jump in on that one?
4: Well, this is a fantastic question, because actually they are our leaders of the future. And they are the ones who need to drive drive this uh, healthy transformation. We have this urgent call for action on WHO. And uh, there is an alliance that has been created where we have uh, medical students the international association of federation of medical students is part of that movement they uh, as i mentioned at the beginning we were just a small group of people promoting uh, health into the climate change negotiations but now the group has expanded a lot and every year there is this health summit of uh, uh, climate change and health and i will invite everyone to join that because the students need to play a role As physicians, and I am a physician myself, we are not here just to to treat patients or to take care of their disease. We are here to promote health. And and tackling climate change is one of the best ways to promote health and to do primary prevention, which is something that in the medical schools now, a little bit is disappearing. We are training our students to be the best possible specialized physicians but they are losing a little bit this sense of basic public health and primary prevention concept. So they are all very much welcome. Let me just add that um, as doctors, we need to lead the sample as well. We need to prove that uh, in our clinics, in our hospitals, there, uh, and in our universities, medical universities, we need to reduce our carbon footprint. And this is something feasible this is something that will help us to reduce costs, to be more efficient in in terms of energy use, and to motivate a lot our community. So there is a whole initiative on that I don't expand, but uh, okay. there is very. Oh, that's, that's
1: that's really helpful. Thank you and. Um, do you want to jump in just briefly? Because we do have other questions we want
4: to yeah.
3: get to, but maybe uh, a quick response? Sure. Uh, just three examples of ways to engage medical students. One is have them in their own communities get engaged in preparedness against mm-hmm. uh, heat waves, uh, storms, and other disasters. Um, have them do research on uh, diseases that are emerging in their communities, the West Nile virus, other vector-borne diseases that are spreading and becoming endemic in areas where they weren't before. And finally, send them over to for electives in places like Kenya. Have them work with the uh, Maasai. I, I lived and worked. Kenya for a couple of years, and, and working with in, in low-income countries where the risks are, are so high with vulnerable populations, I think that's a great experience, they an eye-opening experience. They don't for have persons. to go that
5: far. Half of the Navajo Nation is a drift in sand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So, absolutely. And Ari, did you have I,
2: something you wanted? I'd make one more suggestion, which is to flip that question on its head. Almost none of the practicing clinicians in the world right now have ever been educated about climate change and almost every medical student in the world has grown up with it as a first issue on their mind. So we as the people who are clinicians need to listen. To the next we, need generation. To, we need to listen to our students and let them tell us what is important on this, because they, in fact, have been much better educated about this issue in many cases than we have. OK, thank you. Um, Lisa, do we have other questions?
1: Yes, mm-hmm. and
7: we do have a number coming in, so I encourage everyone to go online, because our time okay, is short, but we'll take this one. I would like to ask the speakers to address the intersection of our traditional concerns with health equity as framed within the public health community today and the likely impact of climate-related health threats on low-income and vulnerable populations. The health equity conversation still seems lagging on this, and we have talked a little bit about this. Okay. But.
5: So one of you want to grab that? Good. I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, you've been teaching this. I mean, I could give you the examples of what Cambridge is doing, and the biggest impact is public housing gets flooded first, and mm. and uh, and with poor services. <laughs> no.
2: I would I would I would completely agree with the question that the issue of health equity needs to be much more prominent in the conversation about climate change. Those who have the most resources in the world are going to be the best able to adapt, and. You know, Anyone who spent any time in public health knows already at baseline there are populations that are vulnerable to all kinds of adverse health outcomes. And climate change is yet another potential risk for these populations. We saw it with Katrina. We saw it with Sandy. We've seen it with heat waves in this country. And we must absolutely focus our interventions, be it on the mitigation side or the adaptation side, and take a primary concern with people who are already vulnerable.
1: All right, I'm going to just throw out that we're going to come very soon to the end. And I'm going to ask each of you to do a sort of lightning round of of what you would see um, as the policy takeaway that we need to be thinking about. Before I I come to that, uh, I did want to see if there is one question in the audience that someone uh, wanted to ask. And we can do that for you. Sir. Yes. Uh, I'd be interested in whatever you have to say about uh, divestment, uh, because um,
3: uh, Jack, I believe, showed a slide of the university in uh, involvement, and there is a petition uh, requesting that Harvard divest its uh, uh, fossil fuel from vo- fossil fuels. And the idea is that, uh, it's more important to keep these ish, uh, fuels in the ground than it is to use
1: them. So, a student petition? No, no it's a faculty, faculty petition. So, faculty petition. Uh, that's really interesting. So, divestment is, is so the question. So, 300 of us
5: si- faculty have signed. Uh, the Are the request. students with
1: you? Is there is there a movement student? on
5: campus the, as well? The, yes. Divestment. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, that's interesting active. in terms of the new generation. But, but think of this: the Rockefeller Foundation divest of fossil fuels. Isn't that a message? Uh, Stanford gets off the coal kick. I mean, this, so I think we have some real serious issues. And I think linking fossil fuel, air pollution, to health effects is the moral equivalent of cigarette smoke and tobacco. And that's, I think we're trying to make this argument. We're there now. Let's, um, let's break there.
1: And let's say we have about two minutes just to do a very quick uh, round, if you could. If you could try to keep this to 30 seconds so I can get to each of you and ask you for your, your, your recommended policy takeaway. Maria, we'll start with you.
4: Well, uh, definitely we have a role as the, the global public health community to be engaged in this. We have a major focused role in putting political, pre- political pressure where it's needed. So interventions like the one that was described now I think it's interesting as well to follow. We have the responsibility to support vulnerable countries to go with the adaptation measures, and particularly the healthcare facilities, they need to increase the resilience capacity, and we need to make sure that we help them to do that. And we need to be there as well to promote this uh, work now on the how to link mitigation interventions, make sure that they are selected and prioritized according to the health benefits that they will produce. Okay, thank you. Thank you. And
1: you all right, thanks. Um, and I'll come back this way. Very very briefly, what is your sure. recommendation? I, I think there needs to be more
3: focus, and just picking up on the last question, more focus on equity and social justice and protection of human rights, uh, both within our own country and really throughout the world. We need to keep in mind that those countries that bear the greatest burden of climate change are the poorest nations, at least socioeconomically. And uh, they have uh, contributed the least to uh, climate change. So I think there needs to be much more focus on that in a number of ways to uh, make sure that they get Get the assistance that they need, and uh, um, that equity and social justice is at the top of the agenda. Thank
1: you. Jack.
5: Probably more practical, I just noted our budget, our federal budget was passed, and in that was a compromise uh, opening up our domestic oil for foreign sales, but the compromise keeping incentives on renewables. So the time is right. Mayors, Communities, uh, businesses, universities step up and take advantage of mm-hmm. these.
1: Yeah, there's a real sense of momentum now. All yeah. right,
2: so we're going to hear a tremendous about a tremendous amount about the clean power plan, and that's critically important for this country for a number of reasons. But beyond that, the thing that's missing from our policy dialogue is the reality that a huge number of people in this country depend upon fossil fuels for their livelihood. And I'm not just talking about the gas pump. I'm talking about for their jobs. And unless we address that reality, we will never have the progress we need. We must address the fact that we live in a fossil fuel society and that people's livelihoods depend on it. And until we address that, we're going to have a very hard time making progress. OK,
1: thank you. Thank you all. Thank you to our panelists. Um, Really appreciate it. I just wanted to close out with the recommendation I'd have for journalism, which is we need to do a much better job at storytelling. We need to do a much better job at highlighting this issue and all of its complexity across all of these themes, whether that's global health or conflict. We need to find a way to do that. And our, our purpose at the Ground Truth Project is the next generation. We are really working with young journalists to help them tell the next stories that need to be told. And and clearly, for this new generation of correspondents, there is no bigger story than climate change. So thank you all for for helping us sort through these issues. Much appreciated. Maria, thank you. Um, I want to just say, in closing, that we want to encourage you to continue the conversation on forum hsph.org. And we want to encourage you to tune in to the next forum, uh, which is going to be Cancer and Diet, the Latest on Processed Meats, Fats, and More, Friday, January 15th, uh, also 1230 to 130. Uh, You can go to forumhsph.org to find out more about that. Thank you very much for joining us.
0: This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.